Hello everyone, welcome to Green.io, the podcast for doers making our digital world greener, one byte at a time. I'm your host, Gael Duez, and I invite you to meet a wide range of guests working in the tech industry to help you better understand and make sense of its sustainability issues and find inspiration to positively impact the digital world. If you like the podcast, please rate it on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite platform to spread the word to more responsible technologists like you. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. For this episode, I have the pleasure to welcome Cathy Singer and Jerry McGovern to talk about the unsustainable data growth and all the environmental impacts that comes with it. Cathy Singer lives in New Mexico, USA. She has researched and written about technology's impact on nature for more than 25 years. She spoke about the Internet's footprint at the United Nations 2018 Forum on Science. That's a long time before this topic became trendy. And in 2019, she spoke on a panel with the climatologist Dr. James Hansen about the very same topic. So pretty consistent. Her report explored the ecological impacts and fire hazards of solar photovoltaic, industrial wind, battery storage, and e-vehicles. Her more recent book is An Electronic Silent Spring. Yes, kind of the mirror of the uh, silent spring uh, written, uh, how, was, how long was it, like 40 years ago? Um, and a very interesting book to read. And her websites include www.oweb.tech and www.electronicsilentspring.com. Jerry is based in Dublin, Ireland, and he holds the MMEITGIOP worldwide title with six victories. And if you don't know what this title is, it's a very important title to every listener to the Green IO podcast because this is the most mentioned experts in the Green IO podcast. MMEITGIOP. And that being said, uh, that's absolutely true that Jerry has been mentioned, I counted it minimum six times uh, by our guest. So that is to say how much his book, uh, Worldwide Waste, had an impact on the digital sustainability community. So I'm truly delighted to have him uh, with Caddy uh, today with us. But Jerry has done other things as well. Uh, he's been working on the web content and data issue since 1994. He's a highly regarded speaker. He has spoken on such issues around 40 countries. He has written other books as well. And maybe the most known one is Top Task, because Jerry has developed the Top Task methodology, uh, a research method to understand what truly matters to customers. And I believe he has worked for, <laughs> I don't know how many Fortune 500 companies, but uh, we could name uh, the Toyota, Cisco, Microsoft, the World Health Organization, um, governments, uh, US, UK, Dutch, Canadian, Norwegian, you name it. And maybe something that we truly share, um, at least many listeners, uh, we truly share that the, the Irish Times has described him as one of the five visionaries who have had a major impact on the development of the web. And I have to admit that I believe so after reading Worldwide Waste. So welcome to both of you. I'm delighted to have uh, two book writer 
who had such a massive impact on our industry as you did. Uh, welcome to the show. Very happy to have you here tonight for me, uh, today for Jerry, and this morning for Caddy. It's great to be here, Gail, and uh, great to be here with uh, Katie as well. Thank you. Thank you for having both of us. Uh, first of all, the, the two questions I love to ask to my guest is, what did I miss in your bio? And how did you become interested in uh, digital sustainability in the first place? So maybe, Cathy, if you want to uh, share your view on it. Sure. In 1997, I learned about the Telecommunications Act which passed the U.S. Congress in 1996. And Section 704 states that no health or environmental concern may interfere with the placement of a cellular antenna. This law passed internationally, as far as I know. Most countries have a similar law. And so that means that if, if a corporation wants to install a cell tower in your neighborhood, if you say, well, we're concerned about our health or we're concerned about the environmental impact of the antenna, that will not help you. That's, it's just not, um, it's not part of the discussion. You're not allowed to have that there. And I was shocked when I learned that law. So I started learning more about telecommunications and what we're doing, and here I am. Yes, absolutely, a fair point. I, I, I've never seen the issue of this law in, in such a, uh, with such an angle, but that's very interesting. Like nature, starting with human health, is not part of the discussion. Uh, yeah, a pretty potent argument. Uh, and what about you, Jerry? Top tasks is something I've spent most of my career doing, and it's uh, it's about helping organisations focus on what's important, uh, particularly in relation to data and content. And I noticed that with practically every organisation I worked with, that somewhere in the region of 90% of the data was always poor quality or, or useless, that there was a, a few tasks that were really important in an environment. And then there was huge quantities of stuff that was had very little use and very little importance. And that it, it slowly began to get me thinking about why do we create so much data waste and why do we store so much uh, data waste. So that was a kind of the seeds of, of the journey. But I suppose the, the, the most powerful trigger was uh, hearing uh, Greta Thunberg say, you know, that we, we are in a crisis. Act like you're in a crisis. And you did. You did uh, writing uh, Worldwide Waste. Was it the next logical step? That was the... That was the next slide. Yeah, that, I, I was kind of thinking, you know, I was semi coming to retirement or I didn't need to work quite as hard as I had in, in the past or stuff like that. And I was I was looking to try and do something maybe a bit more socially uh, conscious. Um, and But I didn't think, I thought, 
you know, oh, digital, it's green and, you know, it's uh, don't print this, you know, send an email. The whole language of digital has always been that it is somehow immaterial, that it's, you know, the cloud, etc. And then the more I researched it, the more I discovered that digital uh, tells a, a huge, enormous lie uh, to the world, that, that it is a incredibly energy consumptive, uh, incredibly wasteful and incredibly toxic. Absolutely. And, and maybe that leads me to the first question, because you've already mentioned several impacts, and that just goes beneath the delete your email stuff. So maybe to Cathy, because of your very broad view on environmental issues, both from digital, but also electronic equipment, etc. If our goal is to find substantial ways to limit data growth and reduce digitalization's ecological impact, what do we need to know about the internet so that we are all on the same page for the uh, forthcoming discussion? Yes, <laughs> I'm taking in the, this big question. Yeah, that's a big one. Sorry. <laughs> I, um, it's the question we need. I have focused on learning about three places where the internet guzzles energy and water and extractions and generates toxins and worker hazards and fire hazards. I, I break things down into three issues. One is manufacturing. One is with access networks. And the third is with data centers. I've learned that AI is another major guzzler. And honestly, I'm just learning about that. And I'm really interested to hear what Jerry says about that and how we're, we're creating data that's essentially useless. And that is another major guzzler of what we're taking from the earth in order to have this conversation, for example. So if I go back to the three things that I have focused on, and I start with manufacturing. If you take a laptop and you look at its cradle-to-grave energy use, 81% will be consumed before the end user turns the laptop on for the first time. The remaining 19% of lifetime energy use is divided between operating the laptop and discarding it. Discarding or recycling are also energy-intensive processes. So manufacturing anything is an enormous energy guzzler. We're taking water and ores from the earth in order to do this. We're manufacturing lots of chemicals and the vast majority of toxic waste happens during those processes before the end user turns it on for the first time. That's manufacturing. Then with access networks, 
<laughs> they're also major energy guzzlers. And as we keep building out new access networks, we're not necessarily getting rid of the other ones. So, for example, we've still got 4G going while we're building out 5G and making plans for 6G. All the access networks also need manufacturing and they have batteries and cables and they need lots of energy to manufacture and to operate. And then 5G, for one example, can be fantastic within a factory where robots can communicate with each other as they're building something, manufacturing something. But we don't need 5G as a public network. We can use what we've already got with 4G. But we're not thinking in those terms. We're not looking to keep using what we have in the public network. Okay, now let me go to data centers. Data centers are, they can be so large that you can see them from outer space. From floor to ceiling, they're covered with servers, with computers, and 40% of their energy cost goes to air conditioning because the computers need to keep cool. And of course, the, the cooling systems also need water. So those are three, three things we absolutely need in order to do this podcast. So my focus has been on helping people like me, and I am really, I, I was not designed for technology, <laughs> um, but I can, I can help people like me to see what we are asking of the earth in order to do our daily lives. One of the things that I've laid out is I've counted about 125 substances in one smartphone. And most computers have at least that many substances involved. I've listed them, and my dream is that every user will research the supply chain of one substance. Once that happens, once people begin to learn the true costs of what it takes to use computers and access networks, I think our use changes, our relationship to the technology changes we realize what we're asking in order to do these activities. So three areas, end-user equipment, access network, and data centers. Um, it was beautifully said. I could have listened to someone uh, finishing the facilitation of a, a digital collage workshop <laughs> with, with a di the, you know, the, uh, the, the rucksack uh, for, for manufacturing, etc., etc., the ecological rucksack, I mean. I would say the landscape of environmental impact having been set up by Cathy. Uh, Jerry, why do we see such a massive data growth uh, around the world? 
to some degree, it's a bit like the the chicken and the egg. Uh, we we create the tools, the data centers, the computers that allow us uh, to create data, and then we we create that data with those tools, and we we fill those uh, data centers. And part of data growth has been driven by basically cheap processing and cheap storage, which we are beginning to come to limits uh, in relation to that. Um, Specific uh, data growth at the moment would be very much dominated by video. About 80% of internet traffic is is video. And then we have have new generations of formats. Uh, We are going from 2K video to 4K to 8K. And, you know, uh, a four-minute video in 8K uh, could be like 2.4, 2.5 gigabytes in comparison to maybe, you know, 100 megabytes or, or 70 megabytes for the same video in a standard format that we would be used to watching uh, on, on YouTube. So we've got the, the formats so-called becoming richer, even though we can't see the difference. I mean, uh, the human eye cannot see the difference above 2K uh, if it's if it's watching something on a smartphone uh, or uh, on a laptop. Um, but the the weight impact is huge. So we've moved more and more uh, to visual communication uh, and visual entertainment, and that is having a, a, a really massive impact. But, but data is exploding everywhere. We're sending something like 400 billion uh, emails every, every day. Um, so, you know, we send the same amount of letters every year. Uh, so every, everything digital is, is exploding. But um, video is a, a particular driver, but then we will have we will have we already have Internet of Things and all, all these automated systems. If we get uh, things like uh, self-driving cars, they will be creating gigabytes of data a, a second, uh, telling the system where they are. They'll have, to have hundreds and hundreds of sensors. So all of these devices that we're building, the Internet of Things or self-driving or uh, Artificial intelligence is slightly, it, it feeds off uh, the data, but it also creates a lot of data uh, as well. So we've, we've got a, an absolute tsunami of, of data that the vast majority of organizations I've dealt with um, have, they don't even know half of the data that they have, that it, that it even exists. And the other half of data, they've, they've essentially given up on any rigorous way to manage it. So so data has gone out of control and you could kind of hide that reasonably well um, historically by saying, you know, by just storing it in these big data centers. But there's only a limit that you can, you know, you can fill crap data into data landfills. Uh, there's, there's even limits to the amount of uh, crap that we can create without uh, resulting consequences. I believe that the 
latest study, I mean, you mentioned in your book something like 80% or 90% of the data that was not used at all after being stored. We didn't learn from the past. I mean, at the beginning, data storage was cheap. That was kind of a free lunch. Now we can see some effect that this data growth has on organization. And still, we are still mainly storing data that we will not use. So why? <laughs> That's a big question, actually. <laughs> because it's easy. Because the people who run or chief information officers or whatever, they, they, well, they don't see it as their responsibility. They, they're responsible for keeping the equipment up and running. So the vast majority of IT managers or chief information officers uh, do not see data quality as their responsibility. And in other environments, whether in marketing or there's, there's this culture of, you know, all data is potentially useful. So let's, you know, let's keep as much as we can because you never know uh, sometime in the future uh, it might uh, be useful. And it's easier and it's cheaper. I mean, you don't need very skilled people to store data. So you can have less expensive employees if they don't have to think and uh, they just have to store stuff. To actually decide what's important requires skill, intelligence, and, and in many instances, real wisdom and long-term experience. Um, and organizations like to fire most of those people because they're, they're too expensive. I mean, the whole movement of the web was let's get rid of the editor. You know, we don't need editors anymore. And let's just uh, publish everything. So we've, we've had this culture that it's cheap. We store everything. You don't have to think about this. And there's always a technology. The latest one is artificial intelligence. You know, that's going to, that's going to figure it out all uh, for us, which it is absolutely not. Because if you bring AI to a dump and you feed it in a dump, you get garbage AI. And that's what we uh, are getting and, and will get because it's, it's the old uh, computer saying garbage in, uh, garbage out. And essentially we're, we are feeding AI on garbage. Uh, we are feeding AI on prejudice. We are feeding AI on bias. We are feeding AI on all sorts of dodgy data. And in fact, we don't even know what data we are feeding AI, because as you say, I don't like using the term dark data in, in, in the set, but the data that the organization doesn't even know it, it exists. Well, this is the data that they're feeding AI. They don't even know what data they're feeding AI uh, in, in the process. So AI is going to become a, an increasingly dangerous uh, aspect in society for multiple reasons. One of them is that um, the humans who should be uh, controlling it in some way have essentially given up on the idea of um, professionally managing data. So data is out of control because it's too expensive to do it properly. We said data growth is an issue because 
we tend to store too much and at some point we might reach some limits, whether it's environmental limits or even physical limits. But it, am I correct that the issue for you is not that much about data storage, but that reaching some limits, but data storage, unsustainable data growth and this crazy amount of data being stored being an issue for humanity, for the way its organization works, for the way the human brain works. Am I correct? We need quality data. I mean, it can help us make good decisions. But if, if you've got, you know, if, if, one, if only 1% one of your data is quality and 99% of it is, is poor quality, it reduces your ability to discover and process and analyze that, that quality data. So there's an old saying, what do you get when you cross a fox uh, with a chicken? Uh, you, you get a fox because the fox eats the chicken. And if you imagine the chicken being the quality data, and the, uh, the fox being the, the crap uh, data for a moment. And, you know, th this idea that it's okay that we're producing tons and tons of waste, we're just going to come up with cleverer and cleverer ways to store this waste. It's an incredibly cynical um, uh, view of the world. And, and, and also efficiency has never, ever, ever, ever led to energy reduction. Efficiency has only ever, ever led to energy explosion. Uh, so this, these smart techies claiming that they're somehow making things better with their efficient solutions, uh, every single time they make things five or six or 10 times worse because they just encourage bad habits. And they just say, you don't have to worry about the waste. But it all builds up because for the, as clever as they are, there's still 70 million servers out there right this moment storing this crap. Uh, and each one of those servers uh, caused between one and two tons of CO2 uh, to manufacture. And, and Katie, you know, is, is an incredible resource for all the, you know, the, the physical impacts of all this stuff. The tech industry is always jammed tomorrow. They create this enormous mess. And then they're always telling us about how they've got something in the lab that's gonna solve this mess. And then when it creates a five times bigger mess, they say, oh, we've got this new technology that's gonna solve uh, this, this mess. We wouldn't have a climate crisis. We wouldn't have a biodiversity crisis if we didn't uh, have a, a driving advance uh, in technology. Yeah, efficiency increases energy use. It increases extractions. It increases water use. It increases toxic waste. We learned this in 1862 when a British economist named William Jevons published The Coal Question. And he realized in when we had trains and we had factories that were making, making cast iron pots and denim jeans, things that people were needing that they used to make in their own cottages. And then when we mass produce them, we could deliver them 
far and wide and people, you know, it was, it was much less expensive for people to buy a pair of pants than to make the fabric and sew them themselves. When you do that, when you lower the cost of something, then many more people can buy that product and you've got this whole infrastructure like the trains, like the factories, like the fabric makers, um, you know, where are you getting the cotton? All that stuff comes in, in mass quantities. And so <laughs> as things become less expensive for the consumer, they will buy more. And that means more factories, more energy for the trains, more energy for building the trains and the train tracks. You just keep generating more. The same principle applies with computers. And I'm, you know, calling a smartphone a computer. And it, it's a luxury portal <laughs> for accessing the internet. Same with an iWatch. As we, yeah, we, so as things get smaller and less expensive, it just means more extractions, more water use, more toxic waste, um, more infrastructure. And then, sure, everyone can download more and more videos, but you see how we're just perpetuating increased use. I also have a question for Jerry. When you said that we're going now to video that's, my understanding is it's more highly defined, but the human eye can't tell the difference. Why are we doing that? I guess this is also an efficiency question. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's an efficiency question, actually. But why, why are we doing that? Why are we making videos with such high definition if the human eye can't tell the difference? Well, a couple of reasons, Katie. One is just marketing to have a new fancy feature that your neighbor doesn't have and a reason to, to pretend that you're, you're better than your neighbor. Another is the essential pact between software and hardware. Software says, make bigger hardware and we'll make bigger software. Then, then they'll have to buy newer versions of your hardware and then they'll have to buy newer versions of our software and we'll all make a lot of money uh, together. So the, the, the bigger the weight of software and data, the more uh, it means that you cannot use the old hardware. So you have to upgrade. So it's part of the planned obsolescence model. Most features that are released are irrelevant, not useful and, and not important. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's how we sell more stuff, but it's, it's the software hardware industry pact and, you know, and everyone's in on it broadly as well. The TV and you know, 8K, it's, it's, it's a new fake feature uh, to sell. Uh, in in the process, you know, that's the unfortunate world we're in of of creating fake features to sell uh, new products in the planned obsolescence model. That's a very 
systemic uh, blend that we we are into. And I, I think we, we, we've got a pretty clear picture of all the impacts now and how it relates to, uh, of everything relates to each other. My question now to both of you, actually, and that will be three questions, is what can we do? And especially what can I do as an individual what can I do if I run or if I have some kind of management capacities in an organization? And what should governments do about it? So for individuals, I really started seeing the world in a different way when I learned how transistors are manufactured. And then I got the idea of this list, which uh, Gail, I can send so you can post a, a link to my website where people can see this list of substances in one smartphone. If every user traces the supply chain of one substance, then we'll begin to have informed users. And once that happens, I think we can make more informed decisions. I also gave myself the goal of reducing my overall consumption by 3% per month. And I, st you know, I was with 3% because I thought, okay, I can do this. And so I stopped using a dryer for drying clothes and I got a laundry line. And I think in some places in the world, this is completely obvious, but um, I'm a U.S. American, and I needed to get a laundry line. I started finding ways where I can reduce my consumption. And then I got a, a new website. And so <laughs> I canceled out my reducing um, by getting a new website. So I'm, I'm saying this that it's not easy. There's no quick fix, but I'm in the conversation and that's valuable to me. As for organizations and also individuals, I've said for a while, don't upgrade for at least four years. So every time you buy new, it's like what Jerry was saying. So we wanna stick with keeping older equipment in good repair as long as possible. iFixit.com is a wonderful organization that has free manuals for explaining how to repair goods. That's iFixit.com. And certainly organizations have clout there because they're buying computers in big numbers. And so if they delay buying new, that's great. And also when an organization buys something in large numbers, they can insist to the manufacturer that they want to see fair trade. They want to see that the people all along the supply chains have been fairly paid and fairly treated. So that's another way that organizations can influence what's going on. Another idea is how we introduce computers to children. 
I used to encourage people to not let children use any kind of electronic device until they have mastered reading, writing, and math on paper. Now, a lot of babies are using screens before they have speech. And what that does is make them not know how to do basic activities like communicating without an electronic interface. And that, of course, sets us, sets us up as a society for people not knowing how to function without an electronic interface. So that's looking at the systemically you can see how we're, we're just creating this tremendous dependence on digitalization, on computers, on screens. And we're doing it without awareness of what we're asking from the earth, what we're, how it's affecting our social health, our mental health, our physical health. So really what we need to change, what we need to look at is our thinking. Yeah, I really, really love <laughs> your angle of attack. Because usually when I ask about what the government should do, it's, oh, we should, you know, have a, some kind of legislation or put new laws in place, new regulations, whatever, etc. And you're, it, you've got a very refreshing approach, which is, uh, but let's start with the basics, children. If we build a new generation of human highly dependent on machine, and especially a tech machine, IT machine, then we're doomed. <laughs> and so I, I, I really, really love your answer. Can I ask to Jerry the same three questions? And, and please, Jerry, when it comes to the organization factor, uh, can you? Uh, I've got like some kind of two sub questions. How would you relate? what an organization should do to manage its data growth with everything you've done with the top tasks framework. That's my sub-question number one. And sub-question number two would be um, the, the current movement around data governance, uh, DM book, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think it can help or not? Okay, no problem. From a personal point of view, I think we need to increase the data-free times during um, the day and everything Katie has said there, I agree 100% with and particularly uh, in, in relation to uh, children. But, you know, reduce the amount of times we're either creating data um, and, and consuming data and, and, you know, just be quiet for a while as well and go for a walk without your phone. You know, what an extraordinary thing. You know, nature is beautiful. We, we, are, we are so extraordinarily lucky to be born at this moment uh, in, in time on this extraordinary, amazing uh, planet that is a million times better than the best virtual reality that will ever be created. You know, this, this reality is amazing and we should uh, recognize it a lot more. And all we need is our eyes and our ears and our skin to, to feel this extraordinary uh, reality that we can actually enjoy. So we, we, we should do that. Um, I think, and, and then when we're 
at, at the point of creating either taking a, a photo uh, again pausing and saying you know is is it is it wise or is it the right time to actually do it you know waiting for the right moment to take the photo uh, rather than you know taking 50 photos and hoping that one of them will be the right moment you know uh, is because then the right moment gets smothered with the 49 photos because you're not going to look over those uh, photos most of the time. But uh, another issue is that, that after you've created something, that's always the best time to delete. Uh, so, well, the best time to is to not create in the first place to make that decision. No, I don't need to uh, take this off already or no, don't need to send this email or whatever um, in, in the process. But if you have created something, uh, I, I talked to a professional photographer once and he said after every shoot, he always allocates about 30 minutes to review uh, the, the, the shots he has taken because he can immediately delete, 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 delete. He knows immediately because you're fresh uh, just after that creation uh, process. Because then if you wait until the next day or you wait until the next uh, week, it all, all often becomes too burdensome. And then it becomes part of the 25,000 photos uh, that you have and you're never going to go back to it. So the moment after creation is, is a great time for actual uh, review and deletion. I have to take his advice into consideration and, and make it a reality. I'm terrible at that. And once you, 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 were, you were saying it and I was like, oh my God, actually, I never do that. And then I've got like 1,000 pictures on, on my smartphone and I wait the digital cleanup day to clean them all. But that's a very valuable piece of insight he gave you, actually. I feel super guilty now. <laughs> Well, we are, you know, these are <laughs> these are things I've been, most of these things I've been discovering in a, a habit I've developed in Zuni in the last couple of years is that every time I look for something in a folder, I, I now look for something to delete. And I nearly always find something to delete. So rather than making it this overwhelming activity, which most of us give up on, oh, I've got too much stuff, I'll never be able to uh, do it. Do a little on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, uh, when you're looking for something, look for something to delete in the process. So there's lots of good individual habits. At, at, at an organizational uh, level, I think we need to seriously look at, at getting in control uh, of our websites, our intranets and uh, uh, other data lakes and, and data environments and actually um, bringing in uh, proper data management. Most uh, internal environments. They don't even have professional search people. They don't even have people responsible for uh, search design and search maintenance and search evolution. And then they wonder why we have uh, terrible data environments internally. You got to invest in people. Professional people are more important than the latest technology. It's, it's the combination of skilled people and good technology that gives us great results. The best technology in the world without proper skills. So invest in people who, who we used to call editors 20 or 30 years ago. You know, we still need them. We need them more than ever. Invest in people who have information architecture skills. There's there was more focus on information architecture in 2000 than there is in, in, in uh, uh, this year. 
You know, that's extraordinary. I mean, I find in organisations they care more about structure and metadata back in 2000 than they care because they've essentially given up. They've said, oh, there's too much stuff. We couldn't even begin to uh, organise it. Well, you got to get control of your data. Uh, and if you if you have to store uh, stuff for long term reasons, really consider the type of storage that you're going to use. Tape storage is about three thousand times more energy efficient and less polluting than uh, hard drive or cloud based storage because uh, tape is obviously much more energy efficient. It, it's it's not constantly calling energy, but also tape will last about 30 years or, or longer, whereas uh, hard drives, you even, you're going to be, have to be changing them every five or seven years. And even the type of hard drives, SSD drives are twice as polluting as HDD drives. So there's, look at, look at the type of uh, systems and devices that you're using to store your data, because you can make decisions that will have a hugely uh, positive uh, impact. And you're thinking, data, everybody talks every day about how critical data is, and data is, is managed worse than rubbish is managed in a dump in 99 out of 100 organisations. Finally, uh, government. I think, unfortunately, I'm going to go for legislation. I think we will have to have a data tax. I think we will have to tax data because unless you put some constraints and some punishments for the creation of waste, um, we will constantly create more and more and more uh, waste and and, and create stress. Uh, I think governments uh, need to create data taxes and uh, connected with what Katie said, I think we have to legislate for longer life. Uh, we have to legislate for modular designs. We have to make it illegal to for Apple to sell uh, earbuds that cannot be repaired or recycled and uh, thousands of other companies. So we have to uh, make legislation that, that says uh, that deals with waste because waste is the biggest problem. Uh, the tr- and threat to life on this planet, whether it's waste data or whether it's toxic waste uh, in, in the process. So we need a data tax. We need to mandate that smartphones last a minimum of 10 years and that laptops last a minimum of, of 20 years. I think without that sort of legislation, uh, the tech companies are not going to change because they're making too much money out of selling uh, new devices every every uh, two or three years. Okay, and and Cathy, you mentioned that it's a we need a new way of thinking, and I like to to close the podcast with this question: so Are you optimistic about the trend that you see today? So, do you believe that people, more and more people, are embracing this new way of thinking, are welcoming? bold ideas like data tax or a huge warranty period or more serious uh, fire hazard uh, regulation or not? What is, what is your opinion on it? What is the trend that you've noticed? In the last week, I've learned about two things. One from you. You told me about the ADEM law in France where if a corporation wants to call their product carbon neutral, they must prove it 
that is a fantastic law. And I hope that it gets a lot of attention so that more countries can adopt laws like that, so that we don't just believe the marketing and we, we really look from cradle to grave at the impacts of every product. I also have learned about a young U.S. American woman who started the Log Off movement. She was totally addicted to social media for three years, and her self-image went really badly. Um, she got an eating disorder, all of this stuff because she couldn't get off of her social media. And now she and other teenagers are saying, we don't want this. We want a healthy relationship with technology. So I think many people are coming to a place of realizing they don't want this totally consuming relationship with technology. So as more people have problems with their relationship with their computer, then I think people will begin to create healthy relationships. And I don't know how that will translate at the government level, at the organizational level. But as individuals say, okay, this is too much, this is more than I can handle, then perhaps we'll get to a place where it does translate more for governments and businesses. What about you, Jerry? Are you optimistic? In some ways, it's hard to be. I find it hard to be optimistic, but um, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop uh, and uh, not, not make an effort here. What, what, what I would say uh, is that if anyone who is listening to this and, and you know, has felt they agree with uh, these sorts of things, I, I just say it's, it's not enough. You need to become an evangelist. It's still a, a tiny movement. It is, it is way and away, away from being anything close to a minority, let alone a majority uh, of uh, the population. I think we're still in, in fractional uh, parts of, of, of percentages of, of the overall population. So I think we need to become evangelists. We need to, we need to talk to our, our brothers and our sisters, our, our mothers and our fathers, our friends and our neighbours, our work colleagues. We need to join a movement or start a movement. Um, this, is, this is not a time just to nod in agreement if you believe this is a crisis. Uh, you know, I, I didn't think it was four or five years ago. I was quite smug about it. But the, the more uh, I've researched, the more I've talked to, this, this is a crisis. There is a, a real chance that we could lose this beautiful environment, uh, this, this unique little bubble uh, of that, that humans and animals and, and plants uh, can live within. There's a, real, there's a real risk that it won't be there for our children or, or certainly uh, our, our grandchildren. Uh, so, you know, even, even if that's a small risk, we'd want to insure against it, wouldn't we? Uh, and it's not enough just for us individually uh, to agree. We need to become part of a movement or start a movement. We need to evangelize. So please, please uh, do something uh, about it. 
if if you join a group, join a movement, uh, join a community. Being mindful of time, I would love to thank you. Uh, close the podcast, but before I've got one final question for you, which is, and you've already shared a lot of references and materials that we will put in the show notes, but if you had to pick one or two qualitative content that you would love to share with the audience to better understand what is at stake when it comes to data growth or the overall environmental footprint of our digital world, uh, what would it be? What would you like us to share with uh, the people reading the show notes? Well, I definitely say, you know, if you want to know the physical impact of digital technology, look up the work that Katie has done uh, over over the years. I mean, there's there's few people who have done better or deeper work on on that uh, physical uh, impact. Uh, there's a very interesting guy. Uh, a physicist I've come across called uh, Melvin Vopson, who has done a lot of work on uh, the, the impact of, of the growth of information. And he has a, a theory about that, that information has a weight, information and data has a weight that is independent of the format that uh, it is stored on, which is, you know, um, if, if, if that is true, the implications of that are absolutely enormous as well. So data focus uh, understanding Mel- Melvin Vopson is a very interesting uh, person in information theory uh, space. Jerry, can you say more? What does that mean that information has a weight independent of the format? Can you can you translate that for translate that for me? <laughs> he's he's a physicist, um, and um, he has a theory that if if you were to you had a, a USB stick and um, it, the USB stick held 100 gigabytes, let's say, of, of data, and that if you weighed that uh, USB stick empty and then you weighed it when you had placed the 100 gigabytes of data on it, that it would actually be heavier. It would be, you would need a, a quantum machine to actually weigh it, but that literally the 100 gigabytes has an independent weight. And he said that at the moment, all the data in the world that we're storing, uh, which I think is probably somewhere between 10 and 20 uh, zettabytes that we're actually storing at the moment, would be uh, the, the weight of a bacteria. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a fractional uh, bacteria as a, as a fractional weight. But he said, that with the way we are creating data and the quantity and the speed that we're creating data, that within 250 to 500 years, data, if, if his theories are right, would go from the weight of an amoeba to uh, the weight of half of the mass of the earth. Whether data has a weight or not, it gives you a sense of the extraordinarily pace that data is growing at and that it is already out of control. And what about you, Cathy? Would you have some resources you want to share with the listeners? Sure. I'll just share my website, ourweb.tech, and then go to the reports. I've got almost 50 reports about how 
everything from solar photovoltaics and industrial wind turbines and electric vehicles about how each of these things have ecological impacts, fire hazards, worker hazards. I can also really recommend asianometry.com and he has a fantastic um, piece called The Semiconductor Water Problem. That's a short video. Oh, thanks a lot, Katty. That, that sounds very interesting, especially the, the water consumption problem of the semiconductor industry. It has been put a bit under the spotlight the recent years in Taiwan, where they had to basically choose between rice fields and, and the semiconductor factories. Uh, and I use it a lot uh, when, when I you know, facilitate workshops or in conferences. And in the United States, we're now building three fabs in Arizona, which is the desert. So the tax incentives will be very good for these corporations, but no one knows where the water will come from. And yet we've built three fabs in this state. It's as Jerry said, we're, we're doing things without thinking, without evaluation. So let's try to evaluate a bit more what we do. And for that, we need data with a good quality, uh, with a manageable size. <laughs> and I think it could be the closing word of, of this episode. Uh, that, that was a, an intense discussion. I must admit that a lot of the concepts or ideas that you brought, I'm half familiar with. So it was very enlightening to see different approaches, uh, not just focusing on the energy consumption and let's decarbonize energy and everything will be back to normal because there will be no back to normal if we follow what you've just uh, explained to us uh, today. So thanks a lot, both of you, for all the insights you shared, all the references, uh, the discussion you had between the two of you as well. That's, that's delightful to hear two guests uh, speaking to each other and interacting. So thanks a lot. It was great to have you on the show today. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm still taking in all the things that Jerry said. It's great. No, same here. I mean, it's been a great uh, uh, conversation and, and thanks for organizing it, Gail. And, and, and thanks for the important work you're, you're doing. You're, you're really, you know, you're making a difference. Hopefully. You know, it has been a, a year now that I launched the podcast. We've, uh, we've reached the uh, 4,500 uh, downloads, which is not that much, Jerry. I know because you, you, you didn't mention your podcast, but uh, I'm a big fan of uh, the World Wide Waste uh, track on uh, This Is HGD. And actually, I salute uh, the other Jerry that will be in the show uh, in some months, actually in 2023, that's for sure, to talk about sustainable design. But uh, yes, I was very, um, I don't know... Uh, I wasn't sure that uh, this kind of media was needed to uh, our community and uh, so far the feedback have been good. So I hope now that I will be able to use uh, Green.io as a tool to reach people that are less aware, that might be environmentally aware for sure, but not having necessarily connected uh, with their daily job. Um, so we'll see. 2023 is... Um, is a year for you where we'd like to grow, but in the positive way, uh, because we, we want to grow 
awareness, <laughs> not, not data. <laughs>